Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1205. The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 12. This is being recorded on September 22nd of the year 2021. Before we get into the main body of the broadcast, three links. One of those links, all of these are, by the way, at the top of each program description on the SpitfireList.com website and at the top of each Food for Thought post, also uh, on the front page of the SpitfireList.com website or on the SpitfireList.com website. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor, Tara Fractal. That's P-T-E-R-R-A-F-R-A-C-T-Y-L. Another link will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by sister station WFMU. So if podcasting is the best way for you to subscribe to the programs, then that is a good way to do that. Again, there's a link that you can click on to to uh, get the podcast being made by Sister Station WFMU. And yet another link will enable you to get the 32-gigabyte flash drive with all of my 43 years, I'm in my 43rd year on the air, uh, of broadcasting and writing, and also a small mini-library of old anti-fascist books on the easy-to-download PDF files. Uh, there will be a new updated 32-gigabyte flash drive uh, relatively soon. And I emphatically uh, encourage listeners to the program to get that 32-gigabyte flash drive, because I think, frankly, uh, if we are not at the absolute end of the world, we are awfully damn close. I think there is going to be a third world war or something approximating that. Now, we're going to return to the subject uh, that we have been dealing with. Uh, it is not just the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and his Kuomintang, but the events uh, leading up to and during World War II and coming out of World War II, including both uh, hot and cold aspects of what has been called the Cold War. In the next two or three shows, which will be more or less wrapping up the series, I'm going to be jumping around a fair amount in time, because there are a number of events, uh, some of them actually during World War II, and some of them during the Chinese Civil War of 1945 to 1949, and other things are taking place during the Korean War and in its aftermath that are uh, worth talking about. Uh, in many ways, the modern world in which we live grew out of these events. So if this appears to be long ago and far away, rest assured that it isn't. This is uh, where the world comes from. Now, we're going to be talking about, uh, in considerable measure, about the looting of China in our last 
program. We took a look at some of the many incidents of losing. We looked at uh, Chiang Kai-shek and uh, Tu Yuasheng of the Green Gang, losing of the Bank of China of Gold Reserves. We have taken a look at the Sung family, not only losing China in collaboration with Chiang Kai-shek and the Green Gang, but uh, losing the fair amount of America, in particular the Lend lease supplies that were being supplied by U.S. and U.S. taxpayers ostensibly to China, but an awful lot of that went into the black market. It went into the pockets of the Sung clan. A lot of it actually went over to the Japanese enemy that we were fighting and that the uh, Chinese nationalists were ostensibly fighting. In order to understand contemporary China, I think understanding the looting that took place really for several hundred years, the plundering of China following the Opium Wars and the uh, colonization, the uh, gunboat diplomacy that we looked at in the earlier shows, the plundering of China that took place uh, not only by the British but then by the Green Gang and by Chiang Kai-shek via the narcotics traffic, the plundering of China by the Sung family and the plundering of China by the Japanese. It is a subject that we have covered before. We're going to touch on it uh, in this program as well. But the Japanese, although they lost the the military struggle of World War II looted the liquid wealth of all of Asia. They secreted away some of them, some of it got back to the home islands. Uh, much of the rest was buried in tunnels all over Asia, particularly in the Philippines and or in wrecks that were sunk in various parts of uh, the Pacific Ocean and uh, related waters. I suspect that in addition to uh, China reacting to uh, a possible replay of gunboat diplomacy, and the Chinese are very sensitive to their vulnerability to uh, superior naval forces, and I think that has much to do with uh, their behavior vis-a-vis the South China Sea. I suspect that uh, not only in the South China Sea, but elsewhere, uh, there are... uh, shipwrecks with a great deal of gold and other wealth on them, and uh, as we have looked at in our discussions of the landmark text, The Gold Warriors by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave, we're going to come back to that text in just a minute, uh, the amounts of wealth that were stolen from Asia, China in particular, were enormous, and uh, there is still an awful lot of wealth to be recovered from some of the shipwrecks that were uh, well, some of the ships were sunk. Some of them were deliberately scuffled with a lot of wealth on board. But in any event, uh, as one attempts to evaluate uh, the behavior of contemporary China, uh, I think understanding its past, and in particular the reality of its past, not as represented uh, in U.S. journalism slash propaganda, but the reality and understanding the plunder that China has been subjected to, I think is uh, worth Well, it's necessary to understand Chinese economic policy. One of the things that has been a complaint uh, in uh, the Western commercial circles is the Chinese practice of uh, 
uh, demanding access to sensitive technology if, in fact, uh, their territory is to be opened up to various manufacturing concerns uh, from Western companies, uh, in particular uh, high-tech companies. I think that is best understood as a, uh, a very understandable reaction to the looting of China by various countries, including uh, not only uh, Britain during the Opium Wars and the aftermath, the French, the Russians, the U.S., but the Japanese in particular. Uh, the amount of wealth that was stolen from Japan, not only uh, material wealth but cultural wealth as well, could not be exaggerated. Uh, so what we're going to do as we examine some of the looting to which China has been subjected, we're going to begin with a review of some material that we looked at in For the Record Program 1107, Deep Politics and the Death of Iris Chang, Part 1. And that is not only the slaughter that uh, was the rape of Nanking, which Iris Chang uh, documented at great length in her book called The Rape of Nanking. Iris Chang also had a cover endorsement of the book Gold Warriors that we are about to uh, access right now. And as we looked at in for the record program 1107 and 1108, her death is highly suspicious. When I last interviewed Sterling Seagrave in For the Record Program number 689, uh, we were talking about some of the violence to which people like Norbert Schley had been subjected, and I wanted to discuss uh, Iris Chang's death with him. But uh, Sterling Seagrave, who was a very brave, forthright journalist, would not talk about the death of Iris Chang. He was convinced that she was murdered, and so am I. It may very well have been an MK Ultra assisted killing, but again, the circumstances surrounding the death of Iris Chang are very, very suspicious indeed. Now, what we're going to look at, and this again in the context of the looting of China, and the Song family, Chiang Kai-shek, were uh, deeply involved in that. So was Japan, and so was the U.S. And as we have seen, there was collusion, uh, quite a bit of it, between Chiang Kai-shek and his narco-fascism and the invading Japanese. In fact, it was that collusion that helped to uh, literally draw the Chinese population uh, into the arms of the Chinese communists, who were doing uh, not only a better job of fighting the Japanese, but they were not collaborating with them, and uh, they were uh, working to uh, overturn the old order, which was corrupt in the extreme. Uh, that was the old order of Chiang Kai-shek and his narco-fascism. Uh, that regime, the Kuomintang, being a front essentially for the Green Gang. Now, the golden lily plundering of China and later all of Asia began with the rape of Nanking. Reviewing from For the Record Program number 1107 and reading now from Gold Warriors, America's Secret Covery of Yamashita's Gold by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave published in Soft and Hardcover by the Verso Press. In the rape of Nanking that followed, 
some 300,000 defenseless civilians were slain by Japanese troops. Between 20,000 and 80,000 women of all ages were raped repeatedly, including children, adolescent girls, and grandmothers, many of them disemboweled in the process. Men, women, and children were subjected to acts of such barbarism that the world recoiled in horror. Thousands of men were roped together and machine-gunned or doused with gasoline and set afire. Others were used for bayonet practice or to practice beheading in a sporting competition to see which officer could behead the greatest number that day. Weeks passed while atrocities continued, streets and alleys piled high with corpses. Unlike previous mass atrocities done out of sight, these were witnessed by hundreds of Westerners, including diplomats, doctors, and missionaries, some of whom smuggled out photographic evidence. It was at this bitter moment that Golden Lily came into existence. And skipping down, this was to be a palace organization of Japan's top financial minds, and specialists in all forms of treasure, including cultural and religious antiquities, supported by accountants, bookkeepers, shipping experts, and units of the army and navy, all overseen by princes of the blood. When China was milked by golden lily, the army would hold the cow while the princes skinned the cream. This organization was put directly under the command of the emperor's brother, Prince Chichibu. C-H-I-C-H-I-B-U. We know the date because the Imperial General Headquarters itself was only set up in the Imperial Palace in Tokyo in November of 1937, just as the rape of Nanking was commencing. The Imperial Army already had a number of special service units, among them intelligence teams specializing in different kinds of cultural and financial espionage, and secret service agents like General Dolehara outside the ordinary command structure. These were reassigned to Golden Lily, giving it the resources needed to find treasure of all kinds from the sublime to the most prosaic. In Nanking, the first wave of Golden Lily helpers were Kempei Tai. Special Kempei Tai units moved through the city, seizing all government assets, blowing open bank vaults, breaking into and emptying homes of wealthy families of whatever gold, gemstones, jewelry, artworks, and currency could be found. Nanking had been rich for over a thousand years. Many wealthy and prominent Chinese had mansions in town and estates in the surrounding countryside. This was not the only time Nanking was ransacked by conquerors, but it was by by far the most deliberate, meticulous, and systematic. At least 6,000 metric tons of gold are reported to have been amassed by the Kempai Tai during the first pass. Historical research in the looting shows that what is officially reported typically is only a tiny fraction of what is actually stolen. Also looted were many of the small biscuit bars that individual Chinese prefer to hoard, along with small platinum ingots, diamonds, rubies, and sapphires, small works of art and antiquities. These were taken from private homes and from tombs vandalized by the army in the countryside. 
remorselessly, though, the Japanese hammered the teeth out of corpses. Excuse me, beginning again. Remorselessly thorough. The Japanese hammered the teeth out of corpses to extract gold fillings. A number of other princes joined Golden Lily at this stage, spending the war enriching Japan rather than participating in less glamorous and dangerous combat assignments. Aside from Prince Osaka, we know Prince Chichibu and Prince Takeda were at Nanking because both later confided to friends that they had horrific nightmares from witnessing atrocities. And about the cultural losing uh, at the same time, a prime example of Japan's extraordinary attention to detail was a hand-picked special services unit of antiquarians with special knowledge of rare books and manuscripts. Some were militant monks from the Mutuan sect. Their job was to pick through the contents of China's libraries, museums, and private collections, or the libraries of Buddhist orders and send these treasures back to Tokyo. Before the campaign began, they traveled widely in China, befriending private collectors, compiling lists of the most valuable items. And uh, skipping down. After the war, Chinese scholars began demanding the return of these treasures. America was aware of the theft, having conducted a survey that identified 17 locations in Japan where looted books were kept, among them the Imperial Palace, the Imperial Household Ministry, the Asakumi Shrine, Tokyo Science Museum, Tokyo Art College, Waseda University, Tokyo Imperial University, and Keiko University. U.S. occupation authorities concluded that Japan was holding nearly three million precious books and manuscripts taken from Chinese libraries. Nearly three million, beginning again. U.S. occupation authorities concluded that Japan was holding nearly three million precious books and manuscripts taken from Chinese libraries. Today, scholars call Japan's libraries the finest in Asia because Japan has returned very little of what she stole. China recovered fewer than 160,000 volumes, less than 6%. And as we have seen in many programs, the uh, elements of the, not only the uh, Kuomintang general staff from the Wampo Military Academy, but other green gang slash Kuomintang elements collaborated actively with the Japanese, not only in the, the narcotics traffic, but other aspects as well. And uh, in looking, in, in understanding China, the historical perspective that they have, knowing full well not only the atrocity that uh, was visited upon China by the Japanese in terms of killing and brutality, rape, etc., embodied by but no means by any means limited by no means limited to the rape of Nanking, knowing that basically the U.S signed off on the Japanese looting of Asia and China in particular. Uh, that is discussed at length in Gold Warriors, and understanding that that looted wealth is a large portion of the foundation 
of uh, the contemporary U.S. economic largesse is one of the factors, no doubt, that informs Chinese policy and Chinese political and historical awareness. Uh, we should note that the losing of China did not was not limited to uh, what took place at the hands of either the Green Gang or the Song family or the Japanese during World War II, but uh, during the Chinese Civil War uh, in uh, 1945 to 1949, it was actually going on before then, uh, the U.S. and uh, the fledgling CIA were involved in a program to fly uh, a large amounts of Chinese gold out of China as much as they could get their hands on, and various interests were then compensated with Federal Reserve notes and uh, other uh, U.S. federal securities. It is worth noting that uh, Federal Reserve bonds and Federal Reserve notes uh, it's worth noting, uh, no pun intended, that uh, the honorability, to coin a term of many of these financial certificates, was relatively capricious, not unlike the honoring of uh, the uh, 57 notes that we looked at in connection with the death of Norbert Schley and in some of our discussions of uh, gold warriors. Again, I think that as I've said before, I think gold warriors for which the Seagraves paid dearly, the writing and publication of which they paid dearly, is as important a book as has ever been written. And I don't think that someone can truly understand the world in which they live until they have read this book. And in the context of the looting of China. We're going to uh, take a look at what took place uh, in collaboration with elements of the Kuomintang, elements of the fledgling CIA, elements of the Treasury Department, and elements of the U.S. military. By the way, a pilot named Eric Schilling, who was one of the original Flying Tigers and then was involved uh, working for some of the CIA's air proprietaries in flying some of this gold out of China. He was actually the guy who got the idea of painting the shark noses on the P-40 fighter aircraft of the Flying Tigers, which uh, then became famous. Of the looting of Chinese gold uh, during the Chinese Civil War, again, of 1945 to 1949, uh, turning again to Gold Warriors by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. In May of 1948, four U.S. Air Force planes on their way from California to Malaysian Borneo refueled at Clark Air Force Base just north of Manila, then continued on their way toward Borneo. A typhoon that had been brewing in the western Pacific moved directly into their flight path, and all four planes crashed into the mountains of Mindanao in the Philippines. In the doomed flight were two B-29 superfortresses of the type that had dropped atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, plus a new modified version of the same plane called a B-50, and the much smaller twin-engined B-26. The lead B-29 had the serial number 
1-800-795-9532. Among the dead on board were General Frank Reagan, that's R-E-A-G-A-N, Colonel John Reagan, and crewmen named Culling, Bolton, John Ray, and Withor, W-I-T-H-O-R. The two B-29s were carrying thousands of FR Federal Reserve notes and Federal Reserve bonds in boxes from the Chase Manhattan and Wells Fargo banks. The B-29s were wearing the livery of General Claire Chenault's Civil Air Transport. By the way, uh, General Claire Chenault had been the general of the, the, the leader of the Flying Tigers, the American Volunteer Group, and then uh, commanded, I believe, the 14th Army Air Force in China. He was among those who was very pro-Chang and very anti-Joseph Stilwell, beginning again. The B-29s were wearing the livery of General Claire Chenault's Civil Air Transport, or CAP, partly owned by the CIA to a front in Delaware called Airedale Corporation. In 1948, the CIA was using CAP to fly 4 million tons of supplies each month for Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek's forces, which were rapidly losing all of China to the communists. These two CAP B-29s, loaded with billions of dollars worth of Federal Reserve notes and Federal Reserve bonds, were on their way to Malaysia on a roundabout route to southwestern China by way of Thailand and Burma. The B-50, which had recently been built by Boeing to carry nuclear weapons for the Strategic Air Command, had a cargo of 117 canisters of uranium. At this time, Washington was seriously considering dropping dirty bombs, unquote, on Red China and North Korea. The B-26 was escorting the B-50 to a secret air base in Thailand, which was being prepared by the Strategic Air Command in the event of such a nuclear war. By the way, uh, in one of our concluding programs, we're going to talk more about contingency plans to uh, basically uh, use nuclear weapons uh, in order to uh, destroy Red China in the immediate, well, really during the Chinese Civil War and or during the Korean War. One more time. The B-26 was escorting the B-50 to a secret air base in Thailand, which was being prepared by the Strategic Air Command in the event of such a nuclear war. What concerns us here is the mission of the two B-29s with all the Fed notes and bonds. Professor Richard Aldrich of Nottingham University, co-editor of the journal Intelligence and national security described the strategic situation in 1948 in testimony before a British court in 2003. As Chairman Mao's forces advanced through China in 1948, Dr. Aldrich said, Britain and the U.S. dreaded the prospect that one of the world's largest stocks of gold, worth $83 billion at current prices, would fall into communist hands. So it was decided to extract the gold reserves from China before the communists could seize them. The CIA provided the means for this bullion rescue mission, flying in B-29 bombers disguised in the livery of of its civil air transport, later renamed Air America. Civil air transport flew numerous missions to bring huge shipments of gold out of mainland China. Where did the Federal Reserve notes and Federal Reserve bonds fit in?
Professor Ovip said they may have been used for, quote, persuading managers of major banks in the interior of China to part with their vast stocks of gold, unquote. Printing FRNs and FRBs with a face value much greater than that of the gold they were to replace, he said, served to encourage the banks or wealthy individuals to swap their gold for the bonds and notes, which would be easier to hide and later smuggle out of China to be cashed in the West. As Aldrich said, the U.S. almost certainly had no intention of armoring them anyway. I'm going to interrupt at this point. One of the things that um, one learns when reading Gold Warriors is something we looked at in for the record uh, 688, Darkness in the Vaults. We, we have a tendency to feel that the financial system in this country is one of the uh, sort of bedrock institutions and that its integrity is at least past a point inviolable. Uh, that is actually an illusion and uh, what really is maintained is uh, a system in which uh, basically uh, those who are on the inside get to play and if you aren't one of the insiders Past a point, it doesn't matter what sort of Federal Reserve notes or Federal Reserve bonds or uh, 57 bonds coming out of Japan. If you aren't one of the inside players, you don't get the cash in. And if you aren't one of those inside players, as we're going to see, and you try to cash in, you will be killed. Uh, looking at the very bottom of all of this is an absolutely lethal mechanism for disposing of anyone who gets in the way of some of these, uh, well, really, I could say high rollers, but high rolling steamrollers, I guess one might say. Uh, returning again to this uh, post-World War II uh, looting of China uh, during the Chinese Civil War. As Aldrich said, the U.S. almost certainly had no intention of honoring the Federal Reserve notes and Federal Reserve bonds anyway. Professor Aldrich explained that the CIA was only emulating Britain's special operations executive, which printed and circulated massive quantities of counterfeit currency and bonds during World War II. Quote, Foreign Office Files also show that the CIA was involved in other currency issues, including the movement of printing plates for Chinese currency, unquote, Aldrich testified. But why were such huge quantities of Federal Reserve notes and Federal Reserve bonds flown out to China? Quote, because of the possibility of operational loss, unquote. Aldrich told the court, surplus amounts of Federal Reserve notes were required. Regional banks in China received Federal Reserve notes in return for their gold. Actually, beginning again. Federal, regional banks in China receiving Federal Reserve notes in return for their gold were aware that the Federal Reserve notes were likely to be redeemable for only a proportion of their face value. Therefore, a much 
larger value in Federal Reserve notes would have been required than the proof value of the gold that the Americans and Chiang Kai-shek's Chinese nationalists were trying to extract from China. I would add this is in the aftermath of the looting of the Bank of China of the gold that was in that had been stashed there by private investors. Aldrich was adamant that the, that the Federal Reserve notes were being flown. Beginning again, Aldrich was adamant that the Federal Reserve notes being flown to China were authentic. However, he was uncertain whether the Federal Reserve notes involved in the 2003 lawsuit were of the same provenance. Quote, I cannot prove that these Federal Reserve notes were part of the operation to extract gold from China, Albert said, but there is absolutely no doubt that such an operation took place, unquote. We interviewed pilot Eric Schilling, S-C-H-I-L-L-I-N-G, one of the original flying tigers in the American Volunteer Group in 1941, who went on to fly for civil air transport and the CIA after the war. Schilling told us he made numerous flights from Guam and Clark Air Base in the Philippines, ferrying Federal Reserve notes and nationalist secret agents as far into China as Chengdu in Xinjiang province, and flying boxes of gold out of China to Taiwan for the Kuomintang. The B-29 had a range suited to long round trips, and Schilling was skilled at flying the aircraft at 30 or 40 feet above the ocean to enter and leave Chinese airspace without being picked up by radar. He told us Jimmelissimo and Madame Chiang Kai-shek were fully informed of the flights and that once on his return to Taipei, Shuing was invited to the presidential palace where Madame Chiang Kai-shek praised him, telling him, quote, I did not go to bed until I knew that you had landed safely, unquote, interrupting. Um, again, as indicated here, this uh, American losing of gold from uh, Chinese uh, communist-occupied China and the replacement for the financial institutions that had been holding that with Federal Reserve notes and Federal Reserve bonds was in collaboration with Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang Kai-shek, who, as we have seen, was May Mei-Ling Song. She was part of the Song family. Returning again to Gold Warriors, whether the Federal Reserve notes and the Federal Reserve bonds found in the crashed civil air transport aircraft in Mindanao should be considered real or counterfeit raises interesting legal, moral, and ethical questions since they had been printed by the U.S. government at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing in Washington where the CIA has an office occupied full-time in such activities according to a CIA source we interviewed who worked there for years. If a promissory note is created by the U.S. government and exchanged for gold by the U.S. government, it can reasonably be argued that it is a legitimate document and therefore binding upon the government to redeem it. Four, if a government can freely create false financial documents at whim for whatever purpose, how do you know what to trust and what not to trust. The same question might be raised about U.S. currency printed by a Federal Reserve that exists for private 
profit. For the government and the banks owning stock in the Fed to renege on redeeming such bonds would be the equivalent of grand larceny. In the late 1980s, just after Marcos died, the wreckage in Mindanao was discovered by a tribe of aboriginals who found the B-29s full of incomprehensible Fed notes and bonds. Most of the boxes were still sealed with wax and official stamps, but some had broken open on impact. When these were carried out to a district town and translated into Tagalog, by the way, that is the most common dialect uh, spoken in the Philippines, one more time, when these were carried out to a district town and translated into Tagalog, it was understood that the Fed notes were important and in astronomical denominations. Quantities of these Fed notes suddenly appeared in the market as everyone and his brother tried to cash them in. The Fed was not buying, and neither was the U.S. Treasury, which automatically denounced them all as counterfeit. Secret service agents were sent to Manila to pose as buyers so they could entrap brokers trying to sell the bonds. Assassins were also sent. An Australian private investigator was warned, quote, If I persisted in pursuing these items, I would most likely receive a visit from some very unpleasant men whose job it is to secure the safety of the USA against any threats to the stability of its economy. I was informed that if I ever tried to redeem them, I would not see another birthday. A CIA friend told me that these Federal Reserve notes were all over the world, not only in the Philippines. He said Chiang Kai-shek's family owned large quantities. These last few sentences again, because this, um, I remember when I, when I first uh, became aware of the facts surrounding President Kennedy's assassination, that really is what uh, steered me on my life's path, path and the uh, uh, well, you know, I, I began the broadcasting when I was 30, and I'm 72 now. Certainly you've changed a lot uh, in 42 years. But it, it is amazing to me how naive I was. Uh, although, again, the assassination of JFK was consummately important, one of the most important events in history, and it should be seen in uh, its correct light. It was, in a very real sense, business as usual, because if any powerful interest gets out of line, they get the treatment. One more time. Quantities of these Fed notes suddenly appeared in the market as everyone and his brother tried to cash them in. The Fed, however, was not buying, and neither was the U.S. Treasury, which automatically denounced them all as counterfeit. Secret service agents were sent to Manila to pose as buyers so they could entrap brokers trying to sell the bonds. Assassins were also sent. An Australian private investigator was warned, quote, If I persisted in pursuing these items, I would most likely receive a visit from some very unpleasant men whose job it is to secure the safety of the USA against any threats to the stability of its economy. I was informed that if I ever tried to redeem them, 
I would not see another birthday. A CIA friend told me that these... That's uh, Sterling Seagrave writing here. A CIA friend told me that these Federal Reserve notes were all over the world, not only in the Philippines. He said, Chiang Kai-shek's family owned large quantities of them, which comes as no surprise because they were involved in this uh, losing, further losing of China during the Chinese Civil War. Worth bearing in mind, too, as we pivot uh, once again uh, to the text, the Song Dynasty by Sterling Seagrave. This is about, of course, the uh, Song family and Chiang Kai-shek and uh, the narco-fascism of the Kuomintang. We have looked at the Sung brother T.L. Sung. He was T.V. Sung's brother. He had originally been in charge of the Chinese and of U.S. Lend-Lease during World War II and then was placed in charge of the American end of Lend-Lease uh, where he was able to basically channel a large amount of that into the coffers of the Sung family. He also worked as a, an agent for the, or a consultant for the Treasury Department in the post-World War II period. One wonders, I suspect, if that was in conjunction with that mega operation we just looked at in Gold Warriors. Turning now to uh, the Sung Dynasty, the middle brother, T.L. Sung, who had been in charge of Lend-Lease during World War II and whose American roots were in New York City, became something of an enigma. Sources in Washington said T.L. worked as a secret consultant to the Treasury Department in the 1950s, engaged in what they would not say. Treasury claims it has no record of a T.L. song whatever. Well, that, again, is not surprising. So, again, whether or not T.L. song was involved with some of that... Uh, that covert operation in which uh, gold was secreted out of China and replaced with selectively redeemable Federal Reserve notes and Federal Reserve bonds uh, is anyone's guess. I suspect that was the case. The secrecy surrounding that, I think, is one of the keys. What we're going to look at next is an investigation into the Sung family's uh, nefarious Beelings, uh, we're, we're going to be pivoting back, by the way, in our last uh, concluding shows in this series to uh, various things of during World War II in the immediate aftermath of World War II, during the Chinese Civil War, during the Korean War, uh, showing how the world that we live in today grew out of that, and in particular uh, how the obsession that Washington, D.C. has with China uh, grew out of and is inextricably linked with these seemingly far away and long ago events. Now, uh, Sterling Seagrave eventually got hold of an FBI report which had been commissioned by Harry Truman who was who wanted to look into not only the Sung family but the China lobby and the business connections and the enormous Losing and corruption stemmed from that. And we may not have time to, to finish this in this program, but we will uh, deal with it in our next program, if not.
With World War II and Reading Now from the Sung Dynasty by Sterling Seagrave, uh, hardcover edition Harper and Row, 1985. By the way, some people have said that they were able to get this book new. It may actually still be in print. I hope so. But I thought it, it was out of print. In any event, with World War II over and with Chiang Kai-shek's regime collapsing like a rotted log, it became fashionable in Washington to remember many things. It was recalled by intelligence circles, for example, that H. H. Kung, by the way, married to A. Ling Sung, and for many years the finance minister of China, and he held other key financial posts as well. It was recalled by intelligence circles, for example, that H. H. Kung had used $200 million in U.S. loans to purchase goods from the merchants of occupied Shanghai in 1942, from businesses owned or controlled by Big Ear 2, a.k.a. 2 Thing, and the Sung family in joint ventures with the Japanese. This was in 1942. One more time. It was recalled by intelligence circles, for example, that H. H. Kung had used $200 million in U.S. loans to purchase goods from the merchants of occupied Shanghai in 1942, from businesses owned or controlled by Big Ear 2 and the Songs in joint ventures with the Japanese. These and other novelties were pulled like maggots out of the log by the sharp beaks of gossip and passed around Washington for everyone to cluck and sigh over and shake their feathered heads and do a little hop. Shaken by the President's reaction and by her inability to work the old magic, Mei Ling, a.k.a. Madame Chiang Kai-shek, left Washington in the dungeon and went into seclusion on the Kung estate in Riverdale. Truman, all the while, was speaking frankly to his aides about, quote, grafters and crooks, unquote, in the Chinese government, adding, quote, I'll bet you that a billion dollars of American loans is in New York today in Chinese bank accounts. The president soon learned that his estimate was conservative. In May of 1949, a few months after Mei Ling's visit, Truman heard of allegations made by banking sources to members of Congress that the Sungs and the Kungs actually had $2 billion salted away in Manhattan. By the way, this was in the late 1940s. That is a whole lot more than it is today. The president immediately ordered the FBI to make a secret investigation of these reports to establish precisely how much money was involved and where it was deposited. So sensitive was the inquiry and its findings that the details were only declassified 34 years later in 1983 and still heavily censored. First, the FBI dug out its wartime dossiers on the Sungs, rediscovering information that T.B. Sung had, quote, started out his public career with rather limited resources and by January of 1943 had amassed over $70 million. Again, that was a whole lot more money in 1943 than it is today. During the war, the Bureau noted, Japan had charged that T.B. had $70 million either in Chase Manhattan Bank or National City Bank in New York, that Madame Kung had $80 million in one of those banks, 
that Madame Chiang Kai-shek had $150 million deposited in either or both of them. These allegations had been regarded originally as mere Japanese propaganda, obviously, um, they were, uh, the Japanese, that is, were looking to demoralize the uh, Chinese and the U.S. Uh, it maybe turned out that some of those estimates were conservative. And again, even in 1983, the FBI report on this was heavily redacted. Returning now to the Song Dynasty, instructions were sent by J. Edgar Hoover to FBI field officers throughout the U.S. saying, quote, the Bureau desires to immediately determine the extent of domestic bank accounts of captioned individuals as well as industries, corporations, or enterprises under their control, unquote. Banks in San Francisco, New York, and elsewhere in the country responded, some stating they had no business with the Sungs, whatever, others agreeing to provide, quote, information concerning accounts on confidential basis, if Bureau desires, unquote. Other clan accounts turned up that were not on the list, belonging to younger brothers T.L. and T.A., chairman of the Bank of Canton in San Francisco at the time. The two banks mentioned in the Japanese charges, Chase and National City, agreed to cooperate on a, quote, highly discreet, and strictly confidential basis, unquote. This was necessary to avoid stampeding big depositors who might object to the banks betraying the confidentiality of transactions. But the Bureau hit a snag when it came to the Manhattan Company, a major New York bank that later merged with Chase National Bank to become Chase Manhattan. Senior officers of the Manhattan Company initially cooperated with the FBI disclosing some Sung accounts, including a personal trust fund belonging to P.V. Sung. But when the agents went back a few days later with a request for further elaboration, they were met by a totally different attitude. To every question, their source at the bank replied that, quote, there was nothing available to him, unquote. By the way, he was busy jiving the FBI here. He also refused to acknowledge previous information in any way or to add to it. He asked if the Bureau was in the position to furnish the bank with subpoenas. The FBI could not provide subpoenas without risking public disclosure of the presidential investigation, which Truman had strictly forbidden. If the probe became known to the China lobby, there would be a violent political backlash. It would appear an FBI agent noted laconically that high bank officials had prepared a flat statement for issuance to the Bureau in this matter. The FBI did uncover a few nuggets, however. It conjectured that a large part of the Kung's liquid assets in America were in H.H. Kung's Bank of China in New York, while much of T.V. Sung's liquid assets were in his Bank of Canton in San Francisco. But with the family directly involved in the management of the two banks, it was deemed unwise to ask either bank for details. Other large accounts turned up in Seattle and Boston banks. It was discovered that various members of the family, including Mei Ling Sung, a.k.a. Madame Chiang Kai-shek, owned apartment buildings 
and office complexes in cities from coast to coast. A number of companies were found to be owned or controlled by the Sun clan, including a foreign manufacturer's representative at One Wall Street called Fu Chung International Corporation and the Mono Chemical Company, that's M-O-N-O. But these were small fry. What about the long-standing rumor in British and American financial circles that TV owned a huge block of General Motors or DuPont or both? If such discoveries were made, they were among the FBI documents still blacked out or withheld by the censors in 1983. The Bureau was told that some of the information it was seeking was in the files of the Federal Reserve Bank and the Treasury Department, which contained, among other things, Form TFR-300, required of all aliens. This presumably listed all Sung family assets in America, or was the place where such information was supposed to be filed by aliens. The FBI was reluctant to ask the Treasury Department for a copy because it believed that senior Treasury officials were close to TV and might reveal the investigation to him. Bear in mind, his brother was apparently a consultant to the Treasury Department, continuing as we just looked at. When copies of the TFR 300 were obtained indirectly, they were found to contain almost nothing. The form filed by Mei Ling, a.k.a. Madame Chiang for example, was blank regarding all property holdings. Apparently, the Treasury Department had been too chivalrous to press her for details. FBI agents tried surveillance of the Kung Mansion at 4904 Independence Avenue in Riverdale, New York. This was exceedingly difficult, complained an agent, because it was one of the most exclusive communities in the country, with the big houses hidden by trees at some distance from each other. Interrogating the neighbors was also a delicate matter. The FBI did get a glimmer of strange goings-ons at the beginning again. The FBI did get a glimmer of strange goings-on inside the Kung Mansion when a scandal broke in New York's Chinese press in the summer of 1955. According to those newspapers, several Chinese servants who had been brought from Hong Kong ostensibly to work in the Chinese embassy found themselves virtual prisoners of the Kungs in Riverdale. They claimed they were not paid promised salaries or allowed to leave the grounds at any time. They were even forbidden to write home. In desperation, they escaped together but were captured and brought back. According to their statements published in the China Daily News, the hapless servants were taught a lesson when they were hung from the ceiling and whipped by the Kung family. Although H.H. H. Kung wrote to the paper denying its allegations that, beginning again, although H.H. H. Kung wrote to the paper denying its allegation that he was engaging in the coolie trade, he did not deny any of his servants other charges. On the West Coast, other agents discovered the cold trail of a Chinese plot to fly huge quantities of gold from China to an out-of-the-way private airport in the Los Angeles suburb of Van Nuys. The FBI investigation, which was never carried out with noteworthy enthusiasm, finally ground to a halt because of the peculiar circumstances under which the Sungs and the Kungs were in America. 
They were not U.S. citizens, and they were not registered foreign agents. They had come to America originally as prominent officials of the government of China and still carried diplomatic passports. Obviously, they were no longer officials of that government, but exactly what were they? By the way, that uh, on the West Coast, other agents discovered the coal trail of a Chinese plot to fly huge quantities of gold from China. That may have been what we looked at in Gold Warriors. It is not altogether clear. Sooner or later, even dethroned kings have to fill out forms, especially in the democratic West where things do not exist until they are recorded on paper. But the Sungs and the Kungs were in America in a special status of celebrity that absolved them of such requirements. The situation was so ambiguous that the clan apparently was under no obligation to spell out any financial holdings or activities. Nearly 20 years later, as a very old man, H.H. H. Kung arrived in Seattle after a brief visit to Taiwan, and that the airport was listed by a cooperative functionary of the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Service, simply as, quote, government official, unquote. H.H. was assigned A-1 status and cleared through immediately. The Sungs always seemed to slip through the cracks. They were free to come and go in America as they wished, live there, bank there, invest there, and do whatever they wished there, encumbered by none of the unusual burdens of daily life. Deciding that it was politically dangerous to pursue the investigation further, the FBI finally closed it down with the old bureaucratic device of passing the decision over to somebody else, in this case, the potentially sensitive chiefs of the Justice Department, where the matter quickly and predictably sank into oblivion. President Truman was given a certain amount of hard information to answer his original question. It was only a peek into the world of the, it was only a peek into the world of the Sungs. Years later, during an interview with writer Merle Miller, Truman said, quote, They're all thieves. Every damn one of them. They stole $750 million of the $3.8 billion that we sent to Chang. They stole it, and it's invested in real estate down in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, and some right here in New York. And that is the money that was used and is still being used for the so-called China lobby, unquote. And that is partially true. A lot of that money was ill-gotten gains, and it, it, there is more to it than that, though. We will be looking at the China lobby in our next program. It was an amalgam of powerful financial interests and uh, political interests and journalistic interests as well. The loose publishing empire at L-U-C-E, it was L-O-O-S-E, was a key element of it, and uh, there'd be ill-gotten gains of the Sung family and the Kung family certainly was part of it, but there's more to it than that. But as uh, Harry Truman said, they stole it and it's invested in real estate down in San Paulo and some right here in New York. And that's the money that was used and is still being used for the so-called China lobby, unquote. We will resume with this in our next program. Uh, this, however, concludes for the record program number 1205, The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 12. This is being recorded on September 22nd of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.